Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind Podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host, and we are on to the next episode. Today, my guest is Scarlett O'Connor. She is a qualified therapist who overcame a 25-year-long battle with eating disorders. It started with binge eating, then anorexia, and ultimately severe binge purge bulimia. She was extremely ill, in inpatient, and was very close to death. She had tried everything to recover, but to no avail. And then nine years ago, she had to choose between life and death, and she chose life. So today, Scarlett O'Connor is open about her story, shares her story in the hopes of helping others who are struggling with this very complex mental health disorder. She wants to shed light on how it feels to be so trapped and offer hope to others out there who are still struggling. I want to thank Scarlett so much about being so open about her story. I really think it will help so many people out there struggling with an eating disorder. Before we start, don't forget, if you're getting a lot out of the Addicted Mind podcast, write a review. That really does help people find the podcast. And you can follow us on Instagram. Just go to Instagram and type in Addicted Mind Podcast and click follow. All right, everyone, stay tuned for this episode. All right, everyone, welcome to the Addicted Mind. My guest today is Scarlett O'Connor. And Scarlett, why don't we just jump in and have you introduce yourself? And we're going to jump into our topic about eating disorders and addiction and all that kind of stuff. So I think this is going to be really helpful for a lot of people. So Scarlett, introduce yourself. Most definitely. Well, first uh, first of all, thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, my name is Scarlett and I'm a therapist from London, England. And up until 
recently. I was working one-to-one -one with clients with lots of different issues and um, with my favourite modality, which is emotional freedom technique. But more recently, I have moved into working solely with eating disordered clients. That's where I'm specialising now, in particular bulimia and binge purge anorexia, mainly because of my lived experience. Right. So let's jump in and, and talk about that because it sounds like your story is important to how you help clients because you really understand what this is like for them and the struggle that that comes from that. Yeah, most definitely. Obviously, there's always boundaries within therapeutic relationships, however we address them. But when you do have lived experience, most definitely it gives you that deeper empathy and understanding with people. My story, 25 years with eating disorders. I mean, I'm 47 now, um, but it really started for me when I was around nine, nine years old. Um, I was, um, I learned from a very, very young age an association between my feelings and food, unfortunately. I had an undiagnosed medical condition um, and dyslexia going on at the same time. And I learned right. from a very young age that food and eating was a really good way for me to kind of stuff down my feelings and quiet them and numb them. Um, so unfortunately, it started young for me. And um, it was binge eating that I started with. Obviously, that affected my weight, um, which affected my relationship with my peers and my education. Because as I got older, I would eat more and more. And obviously, my weight increased, which made life quite difficult. It made it hard for me to be accepted by people and to accept myself. Yeah, it became part of my identity, unfortunately. But yeah, it started off young. Binge eating is where I started. How did that start to, you said, kind of became part of your identity, this, this weight and food and this relationship with food? How did that start to develop for you or when you look back? Yeah, I mean, when I look back, I mean, we lay down most of our core beliefs between sort of, not, you know, our not to seven time. But obviously, I was very young. And so I had that association with eating, so I would eat and eat and eat and eat and eat until I made myself sick. And because I wasn't supervised, it just became habitual, really. It became part of part of my life. And then I associated myself with being overweight. I felt I didn't really have a lot of identity. I don't remember having a, a strong sense of identity when I was young at all. Couldn't really relate to myself because when I looked at my peers, I was so different because I was overweight. But as I grew up, I think I was around 19 when I decided that I wanted to make a big change. I'd had enough of being overweight, I didn't want to be picked on or bullied and I kind of wanted to fit into society. I guess my age had changed and, and things about my life had changed. So I went on the diet, which actually was anorexia. So I decided that I was going to make this drastic change to my body and I essentially stopped eating. So I would eat, I think something like an apple and a yogurt a day. And I lost, in my country, it's 10 stone. I think it's that's something like 280 pounds, something like that. It's, it's wow. a lot, a lot. So I halved my body weight. And what I found was, as the weight came off, people around me, society in general, were congratulating me, seeing me in this whole different light. So this kind of identity that I'd grown up with through into my teenage years as being overweight or unattractive or you know imperfect suddenly I developed this way of changing that so people were kind of congratulating me hey you look amazing you know look at this great figure you've got underneath all this 
sorry, I don't like that word, but that was how it was for me at the time. I wasn't giving that up. So unfortunately, I developed anorexia. So it kind of flipped for you. Like at this one point, this this binging, which helped you feel really good, helped you feel better. All of a sudden, the restriction, you felt good or you felt empowered and you got all this positive feedback about that. Yet internally, there's this conflict, I would imagine. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, at the time when I when I when I was when yeah. I read it, it wasn't really a problem. But physiologically, when you when you t- when as I find in my practice now, when anybody tips themselves into starvation, there is going to come a point as a human being where the body fights back. Physiologically, we we cannot live. We're not designed to live without food, and that's exactly what happened to me. I reached the point where hunger took over, and then um, one day I, I ate and I ate and I ate and I ate and I didn't stop eating. And I was horrified, as you can well imagine. I didn't want to return back to what I perceived to be that previous place, and I perched. Um, and for me, it was it was quite an easy thing to do. Um, I have no shame in talking about this. So so much shame around these parts of eating disorders. But yeah, so for me, it was quite an easy thing to do. And at the time, I felt like I had this magic magic reset button, if you like, which. It wasn't a nice thing to go through, but but having overeaten in that moment, I wanted to go back, and that's when the habit starts because unfortunately, it triggers a chemical reaction in the brain, and as you descend into bulimia, if you like, uh, or binge purge anorexia, as I had, you can binge, so you get that kind of rise in the brain, the dopamine, the reward systems. And then you can kind of get rid of it all and go back to the start. So it becomes very habitual and very addictive. And unfortunately for me, that was a spiral that lasted from 19 to 38. Wow. And I'm so glad you can openly share your story because I would imagine there's a lot of listeners out there that are struggling with many of the same things where there's such a pressure to be a certain way in all of our cultures to have a certain body type, what is considered attractive, responsible, fit, whatever, that there's just so much pressure around that. So to be able to talk about it openly, I think, really helps others who may feel all that shame, but need some support. It, there's a lot of shame around bulimia in particular. Uh, the binge purge element of these eating disorders is, is very unattractive. It, it's not something that people want to talk about or discuss. And I see a lot of talk in the media about anorexia. I see a lot of talk about other kinds. I, I don't like to put eating disorders in boxes. I, I, it's very difficult to talk about it without doing so. But within my practice and within my own feelings, I don't like diagnostic criteria because eating disorders don't have a shape or a size anyway, do they? You, you can be big and anorexic or, or small, and you know. But yeah, so it's very difficult. But but as our original question, to discuss bulimia and and the way that it manifests is very very shameful, and that's what keeps people isolated. That's what keeps people from accessing treatment from discussing it. And um, I obviously don't have that shame now, so you know I, I am quite open about my story. Yeah. I think that's so incredibly helpful. When did you start to realize, like? I, I have a problem here. This is this is something bigger than myself. What was that moment where you're like, I, I got to do something different? 
It was a long time ago, and it was it was a different world because we're we're talking, you know, a good twenty years longer than that. 20, yeah, twenty seven years ago, and it wasn't as openly spoken about back then. I did know that I had a problem, but initially, like I said to you before, I I also felt like I had this magic. And I'm not glorifying it in sort of any way, shape, or form. It was horrendous and a horrific thing to go through on a daily basis. But at the time, I almost was on a high. And it gave me this kind of, and I see this a lot in, in clients, this kind of superiority, if you like. I felt like I had dominance all of a sudden over the problems that I'd had previously. This is no problem for me anymore. I don't need to worry. I need to diet. I don't need to control because I can just purge. And then... Um, Purging is different for lots of people. Not everybody makes themselves sick or, or, or vomit. Some people use laxatives, some people exercise. But yeah, I knew I had a problem, but initially I was, you know, so on this high and I had this answer and my weight was staying low and I felt like I finally had control. And control is such a massive, massive issue. I had control within my anorexia, if you like, because I had reduced my body size. I had changed people's perception towards me. But then with the bulimia as well, I kind of had this mastery where I could I could eat what I wanted to eat and stay stay slim. So I knew I had a problem, but I wasn't willing at the start to accept this is a problem and I need to do something about it. Not not for a good ten years. Yeah. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense if you if you think about it. To me, it's like you you have this control, which enables you to feel powerful, enables you to feel safe in some kind of way, mm-hmm. and yet there's this other dark side of it. And we we can talk a little bit later about how dangerous these things actually are, but you can see why it's like I I maybe I don't want to give this up. I you know I mean that makes sense to me. Yeah. I mean, not only are you gaining control over your body, you know, you're also entering into, it's a mental health condition, right? It's it's separate from you. It's not like it's a personality trait or a problem, but you're entering into an addiction, which involves the chemistry in your brain. So you've got so many factors at play there, control, addiction. It becomes a very, very difficult cycle to escape, most definitely. And to want to escape, I mean, when you begin with any kind of disordered eating, you kind of have this voice that is with you at all times. And that becomes your identity, if you like. It kind of takes over and it's constantly telling you that you're doing the right thing and the alternative is so perilous and awful that you wouldn't possibly want to go back there. And that in itself makes it easy, that along with the control and the addictive, the addictive nature, makes it easy to stay stuck. Yeah, you, you couldn't even imagine the possibility that there could be something different and, and healthy. It probably just doesn't even make sense to the person who's in at this stage of dealing with anorexia or bulimia. What about, I think it's important to say that this is really dangerous too when you're in it with anorexia and bulimia. I mean, it's life threatening. It is life threatening. I just wanted to also add the start point for so many people is always so very different. Whereas my story, yes, it was about weight and shape. It's not always about weight and shape. People sometimes need to get control because of trauma. I had some traumas in my childhood too, but I just want to add that in there as well. Yes, it is extremely dangerous. 
But when you're at when whatever set point you're coming from, those dangers are so easy to ignore when you're in the throes of an addiction and in, you know in that mental health crisis that you're in. But yeah, the physical side, you know, there there is some real dangers there. It, I think it took me about seven or eight years before I actually started to realise that Scarlett, this is you know we're getting problems here. But I was still fighting so hard with the mind side of it and the addictive side of it that I was able to ignore those problems. But yes, we can talk about the dangers because they are very, very, very big. Yeah. And and how were you able to kind of push that aside? Like, did did a part of you kind of know, like, okay, this isn't good for me? And but the other part of you is like, I'm just not going to pay attention to that or I'm going to pretend that I have control or. It's like I said, you know, like my teeth. So with, with, with the kind of eating disorder I had with the purging, it affects your teeth very quickly. You know, it, within two or three years or so, the enamel in your teeth will, will start to be affected. But even with that, with all the stuff going on with the, the, the addictive, my brain, the way that I was so addicted to I, because I didn't eat in between. So my way of sustaining life was to binge and purge, to binge and purge. So as much as you, the pain in my teeth, when I think back to what I went through, it just still wasn't enough to, to make me stop or you just kind of, it, all of those factors and the fear of going back to whatever it was that started your eating sort of for me, it was that being overweight and being unaccepted and, and for other people, it's other reasons, right? They don't want to lose control the same as I did. So that, so that the health, complications and the effects on your body I mean I would be dizzy I would faint um I mean it did get pretty graphic with me but I was still I was I was vomiting blood and that was part of my ritual but it was still something that I could ignore to a point because I had to have that control and when you're in this phrase of an eating disorder you are controlling and you are controlled by the chemicals in your mind by this inner voice by this condition that becomes your identity it becomes the way that you cope with everything from happiness through to sadness through it's really hard for people to understand but it just kind of dominates and and the health side of it very often isn't enough to to take over and stop you i think that's so hard for people who maybe don't struggle with addiction or an eating disorder or the combo, however we want to look at it, that mental space that you're in where you can be in this denial, it's it's all consuming. It's it's hard to see outside of it. Most definitely. And you don't want to to a point because, you know, it's that it doesn't sound logical, but to me and my personal experience to have a return back to that place. Of, of feeling so, I had no sense of identity. I just felt unattractive and, and like different from everybody else and huge and uncomfortable. And the fear of going back there for me was enough to maintain it. It's just, and everybody has their reasons, you know. And once you're trapped in a cycle of addiction, it's the same as any other addiction, you know. Your brain reacts, it responds, and so does your body, and, and you become trapped. It's your, it's your way of life. It's, just, you know. Which is why when I work with the clients now, I look very much at the structure of what's enabling. It's, it's a massive part of eating disorders because there's got to be a structure around a disorder like that. When it becomes that consuming and it takes over a person's life like it did mine, 
there has to be a structure of enablement. And I, I certainly had my enablement structure going on. You know, I, I had my whole life working around this eating disorder. So breaking free from it, you, you're, you're facing a multitude of problems and addiction a mental health condition, which obviously brings around with it depression and anxiety, etc., etc. But you've also created this structure that you live within that's become part of your identity. And when you put that together as a combo, that's tough. Which is, you know, this is why eating disorders have such a high mortality rate, and they are also very difficult to to recover from and deal with. It's so hard to get out of that structure like you said that kind of that trap mm-hmm. in that thinking mm-hmm. when did you start getting help to get out of that how did that start to manifest itself i mean i i did go through pretty much everything that was available on the nhs in the uk it didn't work for me at all i think i got to about 12 years or so and my teeth it was my teeth it was so bad I couldn't I was able to hide through the structures that I built around myself I, I did lose my career I did lose my friends I missed out on a lot of time with my children but when things started to get super super bad I did try and and search out help and I tried everything I tried absolutely everything but I did get to a crisis point I got to a, a complete and utter crisis point. My my body weight was dangerously low. I was vomiting blood. I was I was very unwell, and um, I was actually admitted, and um, I didn't like it at all. So I left. <laughs> and, um, yeah. It, it was it was a crisis point where I had to face the fact that I either changed or potentially I wouldn't be there anymore. And I had my older children were alive at that time and I didn't want to leave them. I didn't want to put them through that. So I had to face up to some quite tough, quite tough realities and the physical state that I was in at the time, I just wasn't able to continue. It had to be that crisis, that serious for me. It was like, a okay, so you either stop now or, or you won't be here Right, right. You had to get right up to to death. Literally, yeah. Literally, yeah. And I'm just imagining how difficult and painful that space would be, and how amazing it is that you're here now, talking about it and sharing your story with others. It's just, it's, it's, um, it's just amazing. So I'm so glad you're here. So you can help someone else out there who, who may be listening right now and, and, and in that in that space. So let's move in that direction a little bit. Yeah. How does someone who maybe thinks they have uh, an eating disorder, anorexia, or binge purge, bulimia, what what are you going to tell them? I mean, first of all, I have to say, when I do, when I do these talks and when I talk about eating disorders, I always feel like I've got to hold back, not for shame, just because I don't want to say too much and, and, and traumatize people or scare people or because my story is so severe. I mean, I have no shame surrounding what I went through because I've recovered and it's a confident thing to say, but I have completely recovered. But what would I say? The first thing that, that I mean, I, when I went into recovery, I had to, like I say, I had to look at some serious, serious things about myself. But the very, very first thing that I had to realize was that I was not my eating disorder. I was not Scarlett, who is a bulimic 
or a binge purge anorexic. I was Scarlett who had a condition. I had a mental health issue. I had an addiction. And this would come out, come about because of reasons in my childhood. So I had to kind of separate my identity from my eating disorder. But it's really, really hard to address people at the start of recovery because, as I find in practice, at that very start point, you, you're not really conversing with the person as their complete well self, right? You're, t- you're talking to somebody who is in the throes of a disorder and in a mental health place where they're kind of behind this, this, this barrier. So it's not something you can really just say, hey, you know, do this, do that, because the eating disorder voice is going to be like, I hear you, and I'm onto you, and I'm gone, you know? So it's kind of... Right, I'm out of here. Forget it. No, thank you. (laughs) I know you're coming for me, I'm gone, right? So it's kind of having those discussions that kind of slip around the side of of that and and trying to get across potentially that, okay, you, 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 you have this, but it isn't actually inherent you it's not you it's something that you're going through which sounds so simplistic but when you have this constant mind chatter and this constant voice which essentially is your voice inside your head you believe that you are that disorder and and you can't see anything else around it so it's a tough question to say how do I say to somebody hey because I know straight away that that eating sort of part of me is going to go thank you but no And, and sometimes the fact that I have my lived experience helps because they listen to me and they're, you know, I mean, I could be really, really graphic. I try not to be because, like I said, I don't want to scare people. But I think when people hear that, they can kind of relate and say, all right, so potentially it isn't me. And that's that's the key moment for me. That was, that was the number one part. Obviously not the whole part of recovery, but just that separation, that understanding that, okay, I have this. I am not this. And I imagine with with those clients, you can step behind that frame that they have, the that the thinking that's wrapped around the anorexia and the bulimia, maybe if you want to call it denial, like you can step behind that and probably talk to them about things that no one else would even realize are there because it's so hidden, it's so secretive, but but it sounds like you know that story so you can connect on that level around the denial that yeah, maybe I can be a little bit sneaky I can I can talk to, <laughs> to eating disordered voices yeah which which sounds wrong as, as a qualified therapist it, it sounds wrong right you, should, you know it's not it's not an auditory hallucination it's not but there is a voice that becomes part of someone's identity and it, it presents yeah. this, this mind chatter, this this constant assault on the person's self. And I find particularly that it is a good thing to, to kind of tell, say to people, you are separate from that, could, could we potentially visit that part of you? And they're like, what well, part of me? Oh, actually, okay. And then, and then it's kind of looking at that part of the person and I have had resistance from other therapists. Like, hey, hang on a minute. You know, you're, you're saying they've got auditory hallucinations. No, I'm not. I'm just saying that this mental health condition has a representative, if you like, that, that, that manifests yeah. in the self and in the identity of the sufferer. And when you can kind of find the gray, because with that, with eating disorders, it's about control. And everybody knows in the mental health practice that control is very perfectionist it's very black and white you know it's very yes and no 
And with me, I kind of find that little bit of grey and that little way in where I can just... Can we just look at that potentially part of you that, that says these things? And they're like, okay... You know, and it's just, that's a start point. So, yeah, I'm quite sneaky. Yeah, but I, I think it's around. also, it, it, you know, I, I would say it's like, it's, it's like internal family systems and parts yes. work where we can yes. talk with that part of our personality or that piece of our personality that mm -hmm. uh, has a certain voice as other parts of our personality have a different voice and we can, you know, by you being able to have the language to talk to that part you yeah. can you know you can help help the other parts come along too and maybe make that that one voice that maybe this is an issue i need to change a little bit louder yeah most definitely it's simplifying that that modality that approach simplifying it a little bit but also really ousting that eating disorder part as this this really isn't part of, part of the family view this this is something that that came along and, and, and took over and it's not actually welcome here. It's not part of you. And now I actually know it isn't part of me. Because what happens is you, you, your identity becomes this eating disorder. Like I used to believe that I was obsessed with tidiness and germs and, and timing. And, you know, like my rituals within my eating disorder, I would have to be sick a certain amount of times and I would have to do everything over and over again. And when I look at my life now, I'm so not that. You know, I, that was never an inherent part of me. So... That part of me understands that within my clients, you know, that, that you always see this rigidity, this 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 part of them that has these same features, this black and white perfectionist. They're so rigid and so, and it's always the same. So it's kind of simplifying those discussions with parts of the self, but letting them know that this part is not actually inherently meant to be here, and we need to talk to it like. Does that make sense? Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense, and and it, and it sounds like you have to do this in in a way that's gentle enough that they're not going to just run run out of getting any support. It's a very balanced way of doing this. Yeah, I mean, people have to be ready. They have to they have to get to the point where they're ready to want to recover because when they're not, like you know, when a family member or somebody else intervenes and says they need help, etc., the the kickback, the resistance is is like nothing I've seen in any other mental health condition. It, wow, it is something else. The, 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 you know, the resistance of I will not be helped. I do not want to change. So obviously people need to be ready. They need to be at a place where they are wanting to get well, you know, and that's when you start to have those conversations and, and look at those different parts. Yeah. What about because this can be such a life-threatening issue, and people can really be, like you said, at death's door that if they don't get some support, they may not make it. How do you deal with that, too, where someone is so close to really having some permanent harm or dying from this? How do you deal with that? I mean, unfortunately, sometimes people do have to go through the sectioning process if, if you know, if they can't find the, the way themselves to be ready to to want to access treatment and to, you know, get to those crisis points and, and do it themselves, then yeah, some people do, and that's normally in in what we diagnose straight up anorexia, where people just don't eat because the the numbing effects of anorexia or eating disorders serve so many different purposes, right? Like 
bulimia and binging and purging is they, they deal with emotions and the, the purging part is, is great for dealing with anger or, or upset or fear or any of those kind of violent ejectory uh, kind of emotions and, and with anorexia the not eating part it, it's a numbing silencing kind of action and with people who have pure anorexia they are so so numbed and obviously the body weight gets so low that the brain chemistry changes so much that sometimes people do need touching in and they do need refeeding etc which is which is awful you know that yeah. is, does happen but i like to hope that potentially people will not get to that point but yeah that does happen to help them maybe listen to that voice a little bit sooner how how does a person maintain this and and how does a person manage their life around this like you had said earlier my life was built around binging and purging and everything was constructed around that this this disorder See, what I think what tends to happen, what happened with me and what I see a lot with, with my clients in practice, it starts off as this kind of chaos, this kind of chaotic, you're either on a high because you find an answer to staying slim or, or, or you're on a low because you've found a way of self-harming with food and, and everything's fluid, right? Nothing stays the same it, within mental health. It never, it starts one way and, and then it changes as you go along. But what happens is... And what happened with me is once the disorder settles in, you find a way of enabling. And enabling is a massive part of the, the recovery program that I deal with. Because what happens is you find people aren't always aware of their structures of behave, um, enabling that they build around themselves. So potentially it can be partners, as it was with me. I would, and obviously I forgiven myself now I don't have any shame around it but I was in the grips of an addiction and a mental health disorder and I would emotionally coerce my partner to take the children out or to get me food or to cover up for me he didn't know what to do so he did what he thought somebody who just didn't want me to suffer right so I would be saying you need to do this you need to do that or I'm going to die or I'm going to suffer so he was inadvertently enabling me via helping me in that way. So I was able to build a structure myself around that, him taking his children out, you know. Things get times, like people will not eat all day or only binge and purge in the evenings when the children are in bed or when they're at school. It's The enabling structures involve people, they involve timing. And people aren't always aware that they're doing it. Like they can slip into routines where... You know, like they only do things at certain times or COVID hasn't helped. Working from home is a massive, massive increase in people who are able to now binge and purge with much more frequency than it is before because they're working from home. Do you see what I mean? It's, it's yeah. the structure and, and, and my own structure was that I would use my husband as an enabler, which, you know, I've forgiven myself for and I have to say if that's how it was at the time and from the outside looking in somebody could have said why is he not helping her why is he not doing anything because he was being emotionally coerced he didn't know what to do he thought that he was helping me not to hurt or not to suffer right yeah yeah so he, he inadvertently was enabling me right and then I would build my routines it did ruin my career, but that was later on. But I would wait till my children were in bed or he would take them out, etc. So you, you build routines and you build structures and that makes it even harder to break 
because your life then circulates around this disorder. You know? So it becomes all-consuming in many ways because it's just yeah. you, you've, you've, you build your life structure around it to maintain these behaviors, to keep this going, to operate even as you're starving. A hundred percent, yeah. It's a 24-7 thing. Whichever disorder it is that you end up with, I've not really found anybody who can, you know, just come in and out and in and out, potentially at the start, but eventually it becomes all-consuming, most definitely, because of the addictive nature. Like I keep saying, you know, your brain reacts and responds and so does your body. And, yeah, and once you don't eat and you starve, and then everything that you do eat, you purge, it becomes very difficult to have food in your stomach. It, it, it becomes, it's not, you just don't turn around one day and say, I'm just going to eat a meal because you're not used to it anymore. You know, you get into these habits. and So that's another barrier you have to get over and another thing you have to rework. So it's on so many levels, physically, mentally, all of these processes that you, you have to then shift to a more a healthy way of being. But it goes against everything that you have built and created an identity and, and it sounds so challenging. It is challenging. And you know what? When I when I went to all of the different therapeutic modalities that I tried to recover, I didn't find anything that worked for me because and this one I went on to get my ironically I did my psychology degree, which is very dusty now because I did it when I was ill, so I kind of disregard it. But the training that I did afterwards you know, ironically, but everything that I went through, it, it wasn't beneficial for me. It wasn't beneficial writing everything down. It, it wasn't beneficial going back and re-traumatizing and, 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 and going back about the past and talking about it and et cetera, et cetera. So what I did to recover and what I do now in my practice is I focus very much on the now. So I focus very much on looking at how things are right now and how we can destructure, which is quite a strong word within therapy, how we can address things in the now rather than constantly going backwards, rather than constantly focusing on, as we just said, it's such a complex thing. You've got so many factors at, at play there. Um, I think when you just refeed somebody and, and you write everything down that they're eating or you know they get to a point where they've gained a certain amount of weight and then boom treatment's done they're recovered it it isn't that it's it's so complicated but what worked for me when i was in that crisis point and i, I had to help myself was looking at everything that i had done and doing the complete opposite Stopping going back, stopping re-traumatizing, stopping studying the past, stopping writing down, shaming myself, this is how many times I've hurt, this is what I did, etc., etc. It was more about looking at what am I doing now, how am I doing it, what are the structures that are around it and how are they working and how can I address that. It's almost like I'm picking a ball of string, if you like, but each day rather than right. going back to the, the, the balls of string that I had five, six, seven years ago, I would look at that one right now at, in that moment. And that's how like, I did it. Right in the present. Like, I'm just right going to deal with this piece right here in front of me. Yeah. It sounds like a very uh, mindfulness-based approach. Like, we're right here, right now, in this moment. There needs, there needs to be a lot about, you know, like, we need to look at, the structure of the disorder itself, you know, the enabling factors, what, what's involved day to day, how, what are the triggers, you know, because nobody can maintain, when you get to that kind of crisis point where you are seriously ill, there's going to be enabling stuff going on there, there's, there's going to be background 
you know, things that are, that, that are upholding this situation. So we look at those, you know, we analyze, we analyze those, we see what's going on there. Um, but on top of that, we work very much in the now, very much in the now. But it is a complex process. There is so many things to deal with, right? You're, you're dealing with addiction, you're dealing with a sense of identity, you're dealing with mind chatter, you're dealing with control, rigidity, habits. It's, it's complete neuroplasticity, rewiring, everything's got to be formulated but and simplified without shame. That's another massive factor for me because when I was in trying to recover and in treatment, I would be constantly shamed. I would turn up at constant places. So I do this and I do that and I'm this and I'm that. And it was kind of like reiterating, I'm this, I'm that. And off I'd go and do it some more because I'm this and that. And so I'm not a great believer in the shaming elements of recovery. I don't, I don't think it's necessary. Yeah, I I would agree with you. I don't I don't believe uh, we can heal through through shame at all. It has to be compassion and kindness. What about if if someone knows someone out there and and how would you approach somebody who's suffering or what might you say to them to say, "Look, I'm concerned about you." It's a tough one because if it, like I said earlier, if if I was talking to a relative or a friend, I would try and explain to them that you're going to get an, an instant kickback from from your loved one because they're dealing with this eating disorder and they have this control right now and they're in the midst of this, this disorder and, and you're probably going to get met by that front man. Eating disorder voice is going to tell you to get away from them and leave them alone. But very often, you know, it, it's a tough one, but I try and explain to them like I have to you and, and give them a little bit of understanding of what, what's going to come around. And, and, and potentially don't ask the person about food. Don't, don't directly jump in and say, hey, let me help you eat. You're not eating. Can we, can we go to the table? Can we eat together? Can we do this? Can we do that? If it's somebody trying to help, I more would say to them, why not just ask them how, how they're feeling or how are they? Go from there. Go from there. Get professional help, but but go from there. Because when you go straight in, even when someone's ready for recovery, that that kickback is going to be quick and instant. And then the other person's feelings are hurt, right? Because they just come with good intention, and they're a human being too, and they they want to help. And then the other person's like, "No, I'm fine. You know, leave me alone." So they then back off. But it's kind of like this awkward interaction so again it's it's complex everything with eating disorders is so complicated it really is because so many factors come into play recovery is a tough thing but i would talk to the to, to the person and explain to them about the voice about what it's like inside their head you know how they feel which which i've done and people are really surprised they're like i, I can't imagine what it must be like for this person to be having a voice constantly or this constant mind chatter telling them don't eat this don't do that that this will happen that will happen you know yeah i I guess it's awareness i guess it's awareness awareness yeah oh scarlett i i think we could probably talk a lot longer about this but we're running on our time it's tough Um, to get it it's a multi multi faceted you know it's multi-faceted but i I think you give us a good You know, you gave us a good view of this for someone who might not have experienced this or maybe they know someone who maybe they think is experiencing this to just have that perspective to be able to kind of understand what that might be like for that person who's suffering with that. So one question before we go, if someone out there, maybe they're struggling 
And maybe they're listening to this episode and they're thinking, this is an issue for me. And you could tell them one thing. What would you want to say to them? Recovery is worth every minute of, we didn't talk a lot about the recovery process, but I will quickly condense something. Recovery is about unnumbing and, and beginning to feel again and going through some difficult, for some reason there's a dance here. It's a dance, it's a difficult process that you're going to go through, but when you come out the other side, there there is no joy like it. When you rediscover yourself and you learn who you are as a person, separate from that eating disorder and I just have a smile and I have the words for how amazing that is I mean I lost 25 years of my life and 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 years and years of my children's lives and my career and obviously I'll be trained now but but to get to the place that I have got to is a very beautiful thing and it is worth every bit of the struggle it's worth it. Absolutely. And I can see as you say that and you call for that hope for those people, the joy uh, on your face, as you said, you're smiling. And, and if it's I can do a... it, and I'm sorry, so sorry to cut you in because it's a time thing, but I want to say if I can do it from the place that I was in at that body weight, I never, I wouldn't even answer the telephone. I was so ashamed of myself. My teeth were awful. I couldn't talk to anyone. I didn't smile. I was lost and if I can come from there I wouldn't even speak to one person and here I am now I'm happy to speak to the world about it I'm here I did it anybody can do it oh thank you for your (laughs) inspiring message to to give hope to people out there that change is possible that change can happen oh thank you so much Scarlett where can people find you if they want more information about you where can they go and my website is scarletoconnor.coach and it's not you I, I like to have discussions with people before I do work with people but my website's out there and, and I am taking calls I think there's a booking link on there so I will talk you know we can have talks and discussions and see, see if we're right fit for people most definitely awesome Scarlett thank you for coming on and just sharing your wisdom and your story with everybody on the addicted mind and all the show links will be at the addictedmind.com so you can check them out there scarlet thank you so much for just sharing your story all right everyone thank you for listening to the addicted mind podcast as usual all the show notes will be at the addictedmind.com so check them out and if you got a lot out of this episode Don't forget, click the subscribe button so you can get updates on all the future episodes and follow us on Instagram at the Addicted Mind Podcast. All right, everyone, have a wonderful day and I will talk to you on the next episode. Oh, hey, it's Aaron. And I'm Michaela, and we're the hosts of the Two Sober Girls podcast, and we are on a mission to spill the wild truth about sobriety. Forget the rosé all day cliche. Sobriety is flipping amazing. Absolutely. It's not just about quitting the drink. It's a gift you give yourself and your loved ones. So what are you waiting for? Break up with that old toxic relationship with alcohol and let us show you the possibilities. And here's the thing. Everything your precious heart desires becomes way easier without the influence of alcohol. We're not just two sober girls. We're also wellness coaches. We're here to show you how to optimize health 
lifestyle and beauty feel sexy and alive as F. So stay tuned because we're rolling out new episodes every Monday, wherever you get your podcasts and trust us, they have your name written all over them. We can't wait to share the magic of sobriety and wellness with you. Subscribe to Two Sober Girls Podcast today and come follow us on Instagram for behind the scenes action and send us a DM. We can't wait to meet you.